0: Welcome to Jason and the Movie Nuts. I'm Jason Sachs.
1: I'm Eric Hoffman.
0: And I'm Dominic Grace. And we are discussing the 1952 Akira Kurosawa classic, Ikuru. What an amazing film. I I, I see why you are raving so much about this. Uh, This works on so many levels and... um, its story tries uh, works so hard to defy the cliches, and yet lives up to uh, a lot of what I want to get out of a film like this. This is a magnificent work of film art. Oh yeah. Um. So very briefly, the story concerns uh, a character named Kanji Watanabe, who uh, is a clerk who works for the Japanese government, and is just a pre- petty bureaucrat, spent his whole life basically not doing much, and um, just passes paper around all day. Um, He's been at that job for 30 years, and uh, basically because he wants to provide support for his family, and then one day he discovers he has cancer in the stomach, and everything that he's been living for kind of ends up becoming unimportant to him, and this film is very much about him kind of hitting bottom in terms of his emotional life, and then being sparked into doing something right. Uh, Like all Kurosawa movies, the direction in this film is impeccable. And uh, like all Kurosawa films, it's got a lot of interesting complexity to it. Um, It both is very much of its time and place and and very much universal. And unlike a lot of films that are about, you know, people facing imminent death, uh, this film really just defies the cliches in a way the master filmmaker often does. So I'll stop there, because I know each of you have a lot to say about this movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for a film about death, it doesn't have that kind of like overbearing weight to it. You know, um, it's it's very watchable. You're not, you, you don't feel like your emotions are really being played with like it, you would in a Hollywood film where you have, you know, the kind of um, like swell of music and certain, you know, emotional tricks that the director might play on the audience in order to emit some sort of a response. Here, Kurosawa trusts his audience, I think a little bit more to have your appropriate responses to what they're seeing without you without re- resorting to those sorts of you know uh cliches
2: yeah yeah it's uh it's very grounded in um a realistic depiction of the emotional landscape of the character um without any i mean there's lots of um, very artful stuff in the movie but yeah I think the Eric you know it's it doesn't it doesn't go for any of the easy uh, even even in, in places where it could I mean it does use things like the recurrent motif of the song for instance right uh, um, but Love in a way no. that is that that is to me entirely organic it doesn't feel at all like it's you know the imposition of of you know um musical stimulus to try to, to try to push the audience in a direction it, it emerges it seems to emerge organically uh and naturally from the character and I mean, a, a large part of that i think is uh, is, is the performance i mean I, something that struck me again uh, watching this film is just what a masterful actor takashi shimura is hmm. such a such a stunning
0: performance It's a performance of such discipline and such subtlety where the character really feels fleshed out. And you really feel this kind of empathy for his emotions in in a way that's very compelling, kind of struggling to put into words why it's so great. Well, and that's actually, that's
2: kind of interesting because one of the things that really strikes me about this movie uh, is how internal Watanabe is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how much of what is happening in him doesn't happen in the dialogue he doesn't say it right I mean I think the into like 15 minutes into the movie before he even has his first his first words um, and then there are all these scenes where he's trying to articulate himself and he can't right you know he starts to try to say something and he says it's just and he never finishes
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, it's all it's all there in the in the body language and in the the, the, the face um and in the 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 timber of the voice and much much less so in in the dialogue it's it's really well again this goes back to kurosawa it's it's a film that shows you everything you need to see but doesn't really tell you things
0: really tells you just enough for you to get yeah full context but other than that you really feel it i mean you were talking about the scenes where he has struggles to communicate um one of the saddest moments is after he spent the day with his clerk who wants to quit her job and kind of gives him life, goes home kind of excited to, to, to spend time with his son because he's had kind of an epiphany that he's done all this to support his son, goes back to his house and the son basically kind of rejects him and he feels the son is thinking his dad is having an affair with this woman Yeah, and completely misinterprets him. And the relationship just kind of, uh, the conversation rather just kind of goes sideways as it tends to do in a family and, uh, you know, there's this, this gap between what you want to communicate and what you're able to communicate. And, and Kurwasawa and the performance of uh, Takashi Shimura in this role really bring that so effectively to life.
1: You say that he has difficulty communicating or, or expressing himself, Dominic. And I thought it was interesting that the one time in the film that he is seemingly able to effectively communicate is when he sings that that ballad gondola no uta which of course is a a very kind of sentimental uh popular uh love song from the taisho period of japan and uh you know and it's about an older person who's sort of warning these two young uh lovers about the you know how, uh, you know, to to in essentially enjoy their youth because it's going to be over before you know it. That sort of thing, and uh, you 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 get a sense that of that because of the reaction uh, to the song when he sings it, and and all of the people whom he's singing to uh, are are deeply affected by his his performance of the song. You know, they're, they're emotionally uh, affected by it. And it, that seems to be the only time in the movie where he makes any real connection with any of the other people. He can't make a connection with his son. He definitely can't make a connection with his daughter-in-law um, who, you know, they, they, they're more or less only interested in him as a source of, of future potential income based upon his pension. Uh, that he will, you know, the son will receive, uh, you know, an inheritance, that sort of thing. Um, He doesn't really connect with any of his co-workers until after he's died. And there's that wonderful scene of his, at the end of the film, which we'll get to. Um, He doesn't seem to really connect with the, with that young woman uh, who works in the toy factory uh, she connects with him, but he doesn't seem to be able to make any significant connection with her and she she sort of goes by without really understanding the full uh, you know, without understanding his personal turmoil that he's undergoing. And um, it, it, that's interesting to me and and it, it does seem to seem, It does seem to sort of underline uh, in the film that death is something which is incredibly personal and is not something that can be shared with anyone else. And I think he comes to that realization as well that that's something he's going to have to do alone, more or less, but while he's alive, he still has an opportunity to have some impact on other people, and uh, and of course that's really the theme of the film is that um, is that uh, to sort of I, I suppose uh, to 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 think that your death is going to be something tragic to others is. And to have that be the ultimate meaning of your death is is a mistake, and that um, and that really the only thing that a person can hope for is to uh, is to live according to their own personal truth, uh, and not expect that there's going to be some sort of like outside, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for. That that the world is not going to provide you with the what's that validation validation yeah more or less that the meaning of life is something that you have to ultimately come up with
2: yeah it's very very sort of existential uh, vibe to it in some ways this uh, yeah
1: and it's interesting. That you say that because I think I believe when we were talking about Seven Samurai, you mentioned that there was sort of an existential vibe to that film as well.
3: Which, yeah, and this,
1: this film came out just after or just before Seven just Samurai. Before. Just before, right. And I believe that it was this film in 52, and then the very next film that he made was Seven Samurai in 54. And that you know, that existentialism in the nineteen fifties was like everywhere, right? In yeah. the post war in Europe japan and the united states pretty much everywhere in western civilization was was uh impacted or uh somehow aware at the very least of the implications of existentialist philosophy so i can see an undercurrent uh, of that in the film it's like whatever your life is is what you make of it right?
2: absolutely yeah and that then, then again, you know, as you were saying, well, we'll get to the ending, but that, that's key to the end of the film, right? The contrast between what the other bureaucrats are doing or not doing and what uh, what, 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 what Watanabe has managed uh, to do. Uh, in many ways, small as it is, it's something
0: it's important i think that watanabe's whole life has been based around not communicating (laughs) professionally he is a non-communicator right and he's trained himself to not be able to to talk well to folks or to not respond quickly to people's um needs and yet he He finds himself in a position where he wants to be connected to people Sorry. He doesn't yeah. even
3: get, he
1: doesn't even get the joke that the girl tells it you know <laughs> yeah at the beginning of the film you know one of his under uh, you know one of his um some more mummy yeah yeah but, uh... you know I mean he, and in fact the first time you see him he's just looking at that piece of paper and he's so focused on stamping each one of those pieces of paper and then making sure his stamp has enough ink and he, he's not at all he's not looking up at any of his coworkers or anything like that he's just completely absorbed by this monotonous repetitive activity that has nothing to do with anybody else like you know it's just pieces of paper
0: when well, they're surrounded by those pieces of paper as if they're like pillars co- disconnecting yeah. them i right. forgot that i'd
2: forgotten that opening shot of of him just with the papers stacked everywhere, right. uh, all around him, and that 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 recurs—it's it's echoed there in the end too. It's actually funny because I, I only just just a few weeks ago I finished reading Charles Dickens's novel uh, *Little Dorrit*, and one of the fly, one of the three lines, one of the subplots in that novel, is about the Circumlocution Office, mm. uh, which is this bureaucratic um, that, that seems to have control over things like patents and copyrights. But its 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 reason for existing is basically to ensure that nothing ever actually gets done. Um, and it's like Kafka. or- Exactly. And it, yeah. Exactly. And it's uh, it's it's like that again. That I you know that that idea of the blizzard of of paper that uh, is produced in the place of actually doing anything uh, useful or, or beneficial. And yeah, that I was I was talking about the the acting. I mean, that's really very minor stuff, sitting at a table, stamping pieces of paper with, uh, you know, with, 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 the, with the ink stylus. Um, but the per- he's 100% there uh, uh, in, in, the, in that performance. Uh, and again, you know, so from the beginning, that's something that's really blew me away. It's, it's Shimura is completely occupied, and inhabits his character. And even when he's engaged in this most banal and meaningless and almost mechanistic, repetitive uh, behavior. Um, the character is is obviously fully committed to doing it, um, and mm-hmm. he he's not the actor it, it, it is there, 100% committed to, to being that character. It's it's uh, really just um, uh, and to me. Uh, I, I watch something like that and I think, man. Um, People, people always talk about, you know, that the, the impressive performances are the big flamboyant ones where, you know, people are are showing off. But to be able to pull off something like that, and to be to just sit there, and I'm not sure how long the shot is, but it's a long shot, and I don't think there's any music. I mean, one, another thing with this, this film that really impresses me is how frequently Kurosawa very carefully uses silence.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? There's, there's no extra diegetic um, sound effects very frequently. Um it's this is long shot of him sitting there, looking at these pieces of paper, stamping them, passing them on, passing them on, and it should it should be boring according to older the theories of film, right? But it's not. And part of that part of that I think is the mise en scène. Part of that is uh, uh, is you know Kurosawa's sheer skill, but part of it is just the uh, the with the one hundred percent
1: occupancy of the character uh, by uh, by Shimura. You mentioned silence and I can think of, well, of course, Japanese culture values silence, right? And in, in music and in, in poetry and there's an emphasis on the space between, right? So I believe that there's a little bit of that in the sense that he understands the value or the impact that silence can have uh, as, as a, uh, a Japanese artist. But I, I can think of a few moments that are just wonderful probably completely sweet generous uh, to the film, Um, the scene where he first leaves the doctor's office. And of course the doctor has not told him that he actually has cancer, which was sort of pretty common back in those days. Like they didn't tell people that they were terminal Um, and he's leaving the office and it's completely quiet. And then the sound of the traffic just immediately bursts in and brings him back to reality to the world because he's just so completely consumed by the fact that he's just found out that he's you know he's going to die and And that that is that
0: scene rings so true because i felt that way so many times when i have some sort of bombshell in my life and in my Mm -hmm. world and all of a sudden you get the equivalent of the honking horn and you wake up to the larger world around you i mean it is like literally summing up this moment that we've all felt in this brilliant filmic moment
1: Oh, absolutely. The other scene I can think of is where his son is asking him. uh, He calls his father. They're getting ready for bed and he's holding this information where he's just found out that he's terminal and he's unable to communicate that to his son or his daughter-in-law. He's either unable to or he doesn't want to or both. But there's a moment where he goes through that whole series of uh, flashbacks about yeah. raising his son, and and you get the sense that that connection that they had a very close connection because his mother died, uh, the son, I mean his wife died uh, when his his son was very young, and so he was a single father, and so and he never remarried, and so you know there's a very close connection that he had with his son, which since his son's wife has come into the picture. Um, that, that bond has been weakened considerably. Uh, I want
0: to stop you there. So I get the impression from the flashback scenes that the break mm. with his son happens when the son's leaving for war and the father's not able to really embrace him when he jumps off the train. Like he wants some sort of affirmation and instead he just doesn't have it inside him. Watanabe just doesn't have it inside him to give his son the love that he needs. And the son's been kind of seeing that as the ultimate break between them. And um that's an injury that they just can't get past. That's the familial familial break. That while there's an obligation and there's a uh, there's a need that the son is very frustrated with about having to live in the father's house in part because there's no housing at that point. Uh, right. there's it's an obligation and not out of love.
1: That's true. And that's a very subtle moment that's that's a very interesting observation i know that the the his brother at some point tells him you need to get remarried because you can't expect your son to take care of you he's gonna find a woman and Mm -hmm. he's gonna forget about you and uh so for me that that becomes sort of like the I, i suppose that's why i interpreted that 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 was his son's marriage as being sort of the final nail in the coffin but you're right that's absolutely true that 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 there was a earlier instance where his emotional uh, his inability to allow himself the the uh, to to risk uh, emotional fragility or some kind of connection is really what uh, ultimately drove his son away from him and that's a pattern through his life, right? Because he's not comfortable exposing himself emotionally. Uh, he's probably out of fear. At um, any rate, his son calls to him and he thinks his he's just come out of this series of, of flashbacks. So all of this is going through his mind. And then he hears his son's voice and he just, he says his son's name over and over again and he He runs up the stairs like there's going to be some sort of, you know, uh, reconnection happening. And, And all his son wants him to do is, you know, make sure to go turn the porch light off and lock the door. And Kurosawa does this incredible cut where you see him go up the stairs and he disappears and then you still see the stairs. And then you hear his son say, please go lock the front door. And then he cuts to looking down the stairwell at, uh, at at Watanabe, Kanji, and his head is down on the stair just in agony that that connection wasn't there or that moment wasn't going to happen. And it, it's completely silent. And uh, it's just that's Kurosawa's skill as a filmmaker, right? I mean, it's not a very showy moment. You don't even see his face, really. And this gets back to, Dominic, you were talking about the skill of Shimura, and and there you go. I mean, you, you can tell just by his posture what he's going through. You don't even see his face. No words are spoken. It's just his he's somehow he's so skilled as an actor that he's able to convey that deep agony that he's going through yeah it's, through it's that a, through a a full, that simple bodily physical. performance yeah. right exactly
2: it really is uh, a piece uh, impressive and yeah that uh, that that is a the scene you're talking about uh the the, the, the contrast you know i love the fact that when he goes to lock the door, the baseball bat that triggers the memory—you know—it's now right. just used as a as a as a doorstop, <laughs> right? You know, it's oh. just uh, just what you use to brace the door as, as an extra lock for the door. Um, so this this artifact that was connected, you know, to his his pride in his son as a baseball player as a kid, and and the, you know this this event—it's just—it's just been reduced to 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 a, a, a purely functional object. Uh, it's you know again the, this is
1: but again something- that gets back to that theme of what we were talking about with existentialism which it, it's not the thing itself it's the yep. meaning you provide it yeah and like like the hat and that's, li- and that's life that, li- that that bat is a perfect metaphor for life right it's just a bat yeah. it really has no intrinsic meaning other than the meaning that you give to it
0: yeah also right that's very important symbolic yeah, in, in the same, by the same
2: token, I was really interested that you know when uh, when uh, when the office girl, um, uh, what's her name, Toyo, uh, quits and she goes and works at the factory. She's working at this factory that's making these really like cheap, cheesy little mechanical rabbits, yeah. right? Completely disposable kitsch. Um, but one of the last shots in the movie is he still has the rabbit that he took when he got the inspiration, and it's there with his alarm clock. Uh, so, as you're saying, Eric, you know, the thing itself, you can't get something that is much less meaningful than yeah. a mass-produced, cheap wind-up toy, which is what that is. Um, but it's the way, it, the way it's associated specifically with, with Watanabe's uh, sort of, you know, epiphany moment of rebirth reads, I can do something. Uh, it becomes imbued with, with a meaning that the, the intrinsic object just doesn't have. One man's trash
1: is another man's treasure. Exactly, yeah.
0: When you were um, alluding to the hat, I would go on yeah. with the hat stuff too, because it's so important symbolically.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's actually, I, I was laughing when I watched the movie again. Um, and at, at, at the wake scene when the, uh, the reporters come to the door and the deputy mayor goes down to talk to them, you can see in the door behind it but there's just a huge pile of hats there mm-hmm. you know that i presumably all the all the mourners at the wake have just like left their hats in this in this jumbled pile <laughs> um, which you know reminds us that you know again yeah, it's just a thing right uh, but uh, but yeah the when he gets, when he loses his hat and then he gets the new hat it acquires this 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 symbolic
1: association with his with his rejuvenation well even like with Toyo, the factory girl, Yeah, she feels that by making these kitschy objects that she's metaphorically playing with all of the children of Japan, right? So yeah. through this cheap, disp- almost disposable object, that's her connection with the rest of the world in a way.
0: Yeah, those little yeah. walking bunny things that you'd pay 499 for and would think twice if you lost yeah.
1: She's giving it a meaning that is far more consequential than the meaning it has in and of itself
0: yeah
2: yeah and it's again you know objectively speaking there is, isn't really any more meaning to what she's doing working in that factory than there was when she was working for the bureaucracy at city hall
0: uh, but subjectively there is right well at least something's actually getting done and into the hands of people Instead of papers just being pushed from one place to the next. Well, yeah. that's like
1: you know, I mean, and and, and the, the the children's playground, for example. Yeah. I mean, to somebody walking by, it's just just another playground, right? I mean, it's of very little consequence in and of yeah. itself. Mm-hmm. But to but to Kanji, that's that's his great, you know, transformative or or. Uh, no, that 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 is the thing which allows him to reconcile all of his past mistakes
2: yeah and again if you sort of imagine if there'd been an american version of this film he'd have built disneyland or something <laughs> right
0: i didn't get to see that british version of this film i think it's pretty pretty much exactly the same i think he does build a garden or a, a playground
2: yeah i've heard about it but i haven't seen it
0: yeah i couldn't i didn't get a chance to catch it unfortunately living is what it's called um with Bill Nye yeah 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 pretty generic uh title um yeah I, I keep coming back to the hat because um, Kanji loses the hat in his night of debauchery right he wanders over to he eventually find himself at a bar where the novelist who I think is never actually named the second-rate novelist who he becomes pals with kind of shows him the wildlife he could be living and he kind of is uncomfortable Kanji's completely uncomfortable in that lifestyle um, it's we as viewers read it as kind of exciting and interesting there's a great a couple great uh, moments of dancing and music in there some beautiful cinematography especially the scenes of the piano keys tapping against the uh yeah. against the wires um, but like Kanji's unhappy because his crappy old hat has been stolen from him and then he and his buddy end up buying a new hat he, he had like this old kind of beat up hat it was like a gray and I don't think it was black but anyway it's like this old derby style he gets this kind of flashier white hat that everyone kind of seizes on and says wow look at him it's, he's suddenly changed his wardrobe because he's wearing this really cool hat Um, It's this kind of symbolic like moment where he's gone from being his same old self to becoming somebody else because of what he has on his head. And it's just interesting how that then gets played out through so much of the rest of the movie. It's a really fun kind of element of symbolism to it.
2: Yeah. And again, you know, just textbook example of Kurosawa's attention to, to detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the banal and the trivial, yeah, the, the importance that it can assume in the of this movie—it's uh, just—and uh, yeah, that that the the, uh, the novelist is—I don't believe ever named. He's just the uh, he identifies himself as a second-rate writer, but I don't think he's ever actually given a name. He's just well, he sort of self-defines. He says, "I'll I'll be your Mephistopheles, but I won't ask for your soul."
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> At least that's what my subtitle said he was saying.
0: Yeah. Right, and I'm not sure I completely got that reference.
2: Well, Mephistopheles is the the devil who tempts Faust, sells right. his soul uh, in exchange for, you know, whatever the, the different versions. But you know, Faust, get, I'll get 24 years of, you know, whatever I want, pleasure in exchange for my soul. And Mephistopheles is the one who leads Faust astray. Uh, so you know, there's that 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 association with the idea of you know, temptation and, and falling into some sort of uh, sinful behavior um but and that's the thing that really struck me when i was when i was watching that you know the 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 night of debauchery sequence um yeah you know they go and they watch a stripper even but it all none of it it, none of it felt at least in terms of what we saw what navi doing none of it felt you know like corrupt or sordid or anything um there, that's certainly the world that he's in and then you have the scene where the two of them are in the cab and the one woman is just counting the money and the other one is adjusting adjusting her lipstick that tells us volumes about the world that we're in mm-hmm.
3: um
2: but for him for for, for, for Watanabe it, it's a very different kind of experience um and uh I think a key moment for that is you know when they're, when they're watching the stripper and the and the novelist is saying yeah look at that woman's body she's a nice juicy steak she's this she's that um, and it's all very you know it's it's all very yeah uh, you know, it's objectifying and it's uh, uh, it it you know it's it is you know kind of you know sorted but Watnabe watching her has this 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 look on his face and he lets out that that yawp,
3: mm-hmm. that
2: that that bellow. Which is just like a complete, to me anyway, it was like a completely sort of you know a, a affirmative moment. He wasn't experiencing. He when he was watching that, he wasn't. To me, it wasn't. It wasn't like a, a of moment. And, and, and then in the whole thing played out with Toya, where right? everyone thinks he's having an affair with this young woman, even she's not really sure what his motivations are. Uh, but his motivations aren't, you know, carnal. They aren't sexual. He's not. Uh, he's he's not you know saying oh I, you know I only have six months left to live so I'm gonna I'm gonna drown my my sorrows in the pleasures of the flesh and spend all my money indulging myself that seems to be a possibility um, but I don't think that's that doesn't seem to we what he, what he takes away from that experience that that moment with the stripper even the way that stripper is shot uh, with the with the kind of the soft focus it doesn't it doesn't
0: it doesn't come across as sleazy. It comes across as oddly affirming, right? Like yeah. you're saying, almost freeing for him to have that experience.
2: Yeah, it's it's like, um, you know, he's sort of I don't know, seeing at the center of things.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: not not fully yet, because he still, it's not until the, the, the scene with Toyo later, where she says, you know, why do you try to do something? That it actually, I guess you might say, gets, gets turned um, into something active and positive, as opposed to just something experiential. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's such a stunning moment, I thought. Yeah, I, can't, I don't even want to try people get the noise because it'll probably break my
1: microphone. Well, <laughs> it's a, like purely subjective, like we've been talking about, you know, it's uh, anyone, anyone looking from outside the scene would just see a, a couple of dirty old men looking yeah. at this young woman, right? And it's degrading and everything like that. It's actually this uh, completely life-affirming moment
0: yeah, and they yeah. show him at the dance club, which is completely jammed with people. And he feels completely, he seems to be ill at ease there. He seems to be the the classic example of the man who's surrounded by a thousand people and friends with none of them.
2: Yeah, there was actually there was the one shot in that scene, not, not the big shot where you're seeing them all like shoulder to shoulder and pressed together, but later where there's like, you only see like three or four couples dancing. And I was looking at that and I was thinking, are those even real women?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. It looks like they're dancing with mannequins, right? Uh, it was like this sort of comment on, on on the sort of hedonistic pursuit of pleasure that these characters are engaged in is is mechanical and lifeless. But that's ultimately not what you know what Navi takes away from it. You know, the, the amusingly, that what's the one thing that he revisits with Toyo later? It's the little arcade machines, right? The, this the cheap cheesy thing where you put the coins in and. Maybe win a prize.
0: Yeah, the pachinkos, which are like mm-hmm. you have the least control of all against those. You just drop a, a ball in, and it just falls. You you can't do anything to control it.
2: Yeah. And the the fact that the sort of the competition for the park is a red light district. Yes, mm-hmm. again, sort of speaks to that that kind of uh, tension. I actually love that scene where where you, where, the, where the the hoodlums basically confront him outside the mayor's office, and. he beats them just by just by looking at them and saying nothing (laughs) Mm -hmm. and smiling right it's like wow man
1: well that's the way this this film works on so many different levels and and one level that we haven't really talked about is how it's a commentary on post-war Japan yeah in a lot of ways because you have well you have the you have the bureaucracy the sort of western style bureaucracy that's been built up in industrial Japan, and then you have uh, Kanji's social isolation. I mean, that's the that's the social isolation of the city dweller, right? Um, the families are falling apart. That this the familial structure of Japan, which held the country together for eons, uh, is being suddenly appended by. Industrialization and and the um, uh, move all the kids are moving to the cities and there's no longer that sort of agriculturally based family based social structure anymore and it, it's very uh, uh, it's very um, isolating it's very alienating and so the film seems to be hitting on all of those points as well yeah and, and using that that context as a commentary of how connections with others are so difficult to make on some pretty like basic levels in modern society. Yes, and
2: that with, with that in mind, I don't think it's an accident at all that the initial agitators for the park are a group of women. One of, right. whom, one of whom always has a baby on her back. Right. Every time we see her, she's got that baby on her back.
0: Right. right. Well, uh, so you just were talking about why the attractiveness of existentialism was so powerful for him, right? Because that literally was the society he was living in. And in fact, it was only, you know, 10 years earlier that everything was up in the air, 15 years earlier, that um, society was one way. And now if society is a completely different way. The only way this film was made was because uh, essentially that the American censors were about to leave the country. So, so they wouldn't have, so they couldn't prevent them from making this movie that criticizes the American setup bureaucracy. So um, yeah, of course he felt tremendous dislocation. A man of his age and in his generation, there's no way he couldn't, right. And we see that in part of the nostalgia with the uh, Samurai films as well, right. This deep, deep need to connect to a larger version of his society.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me also that this film is a, a somewhat influenced by Tolstoy's mm-hmm. novel, uh, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. And, and this isn't the only time that he's used Russian literature as an inspiration for his film. I believe Redbeard was also... Well, in
0: fact, the previous movie was The Idiot, based on... In The Idiot, right. Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, yes. Uh, so
1: he's not only drawing upon the the uh, Japanese tradition, but he's also sort of looking at classic literature as well as a, as a wellspring uh, for identifying this modern malaise or providing it with some sort of like... Uh, extra contemporary context, uh, giving it a little uh, a, a universal quality to it by using Russian literature from a, a previous era, a pre sort of almost pre-industrial era.
2: Yeah, one of the things that I was kind of surprised to learn about Kurosawa when I began to read more about him was that within Japan, he is often viewed as like not
1: sufficiently Japanese. Right. Right. <laughs> in fact, too westernized.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: That's true. Yeah, uh O O2 is sort of held up as the yeah. the pinnacle of Japanese style filmmaker, like legitimately Japanese. And
0: Kurosawa. Yeah, we talked about those Ozu yeah. movies
1: and yeah, they felt right.
0: they felt different different from the Kurosawa movies. Yeah. I mean, and and if you look at like the movies he made in this sequence, um, there's a lot of doubt about the the reality he lives in or questioning and all seeking deeper literature right he'd done Rashomon just recently before that then the idiot then Ikiru and then Seven Samurai which is his first movie that takes place in the past it's a movie so good it's just like a miracle when you start to think about where it came from and then he, he did a minor movie I live in fear and then Throne of Blood based of course on Macbeth so he's continually seeking out inspiration from external sources. He's he's and he's also continually trying to find what the real truth is, right? Rashomon re- reflects um, this kind of shifting view of reality, which we also see in the, la- the final third of Ikiru, where everyone's yeah. telling their stories about Kanji. Yes, we don't get to see the actual transformation from an objective standpoint, only from the subjective standpoint.
2: that that to me is one of the most impressive features of this film is you get to this point you're like an an hour over an hour into the movie and he's just about to go out and and start changing the world and then you get and five months later he's dead yes (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, brilliant i found myself thinking (laughs) is there an earlier instance of a movie that was that audacious that that killed off a, a protagonist or a main character like so far before the end of the movie uh, I mean, the earliest, the only, the next earliest one I can think of is Psycho. And that's like 10 years later.
0: Um, not from killing off the character. Uh, the lady vanishes from 37 or something, starts out yeah. as a comedy and becomes a, a action drama. But that's not the, it, I think it compares to this.
3: And
1: yeah, it's, it's probably, and a, probably nowhere near the same. But I always thought it. Would,
3: uh,
1: it's some, some, a couple of years before this. Are we recording? Yeah. Okay. A couple of years before the film came out, uh, Billy Wilder, set Boulevard, yeah. was narrated by that guy. <laughs> so that was pretty yeah. audacious. You know, you first see him floating in the pool. Uh, outside the mansion and then he's he starts to say you know well you know here i am look at me this is where i ended up <laughs> right it's, it's one of the things that, film from beyond the grave you know that was that was pretty audacious it's one of the things that i tripped over
2: when i was just doing some, you know reading around this film uh before this uh this meeting when they were working on the script that kurosawa and his script writing partner had produced about 50 or 60 pages then they brought in the, an external guy who was supposed to be, like give them advice about what to do and he said, no, 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 this is really, this isn't working. You should be doing this and you should be doing this and you should be doing this. And Kurosawa said to him, if we do that, the protagonist will die halfway through the movie. Yes. And the <laughs> guy's answer was, the protagonist can die halfway through the movie. But I'm thinking, in
1: 1953? That's <laughs> yeah. that's a pretty audacious idea. That's pretty, yeah. I, I, I absolutely adore uh, that section of the film. I, I don't oh, know yeah, about yeah. The, thing, the thing for like Jump a, a drunken Japanese businessman. I have no idea, <laughs> but it's so brilliantly filmed. The acting is and and the script writing uh, all throughout that sequence is just firing on all cylinders. Um, it's just such a wonderful microcosm. Yeah. Japanese society, social social customs behaviors, which are somewhat alien to us. As Westerners, uh, interact how how people interact with one each other, with one another within that particular social context, and it's just fascinating to watch in and of itself. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's really right. again. I, I think we I think I talked about this a little bit
2: in our previous discussions. One of the things that amazes me about Kurosawa is the precision with which he controls the actors and the postures that actors are in. Um, and that sequence where you have this, like this, this room full of these guys, mm. um, it never looks, it never looks artificial,
3: mm-hmm. but right. it's so
2: carefully choreographed and who, who you're looking at, who's in the foreground and who's in the background is so carefully choreographed that there's always more going on in the scene than just the dialogue. Um, for instance, there's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if he's ever given a name, but there's like the one clerk um and he's the one who sort of starts it he says no no he, he was the one who did this right after the deputy mayor has left um every time you can see him in the background his posture the look on his face is always qualitatively different from everybody else so he's this silent commentator mm. um on on, on on the rest of on, on the rest of it uh and again that's you know to me is one of the things that just blows me away about kurosawa is uh is the, the way that he controls even how actors move and where they're placed as, as part of the whole visual experience. Oh I'm sorry go not ahead.
1: Only how they, not only how they uh, n- not only how they play how they're placed how they're placed in relationship to one another and how yeah. they interact with one another as well. Because there's all there's not only there's not simply what they are doing, it's also what they are doing in relationship to one another.
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is a great sequence.
1: Uh, It it reminded me, in a way, I I was talking to Jason about this, uh, we were talking about Hal Ashby last week, but there's a a thing that filmmakers, certain filmmakers do and do well, and they're called forever scenes. mm And, and these are scenes that just sort of like go on and on and on and, yeah. and the connective tissue of each shot may be very tight as in this case, or it may be something that's extremely loose. Generally, these sort of forever scenes take place within like one room, you know, or in a very yeah. contained environment, they have almost like a theatrical sort of claustrophobia to them. Yeah. But there's some of the greatest scenes ever made, and they're just so captivating, because yep. you have this situation where everybody is sort of pressed in with each other. They're there for a specific purpose, and they're, you know they're not going to leave because of one thing or another. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so you're just sort of watching this, uh, this sequence of, of events unfold, and it just keeps going on and on, and you can't take your eyes off. Yeah, that, that
2: sequence, that the wake sequences must be close to an hour long. Right. Yeah.
1: Uh, it's and it's, really, it's broken it's up really by the flashbacks
2: and stuff, but yeah. Right.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you add in the flashbacks and everything, but it's all within that. Yeah. You know, it's almost like it's a film within a film. It's like it's its yeah. own, it has its own like structural logic. Yeah. That's so incredibly different from the first portion of the film. And yet it still has. Even within that different logic, it's still, Kurosawa is still somehow able to maintain the overall cohesiveness of the film, despite that. It's masterful.
0: You get the interior view for the first two thirds of the film. Then we get the exterior view, but the brilliance of it is at the very end, we go back to the interior through the eyes of the exterior because that beautiful scene where he's at the park and then singing while he's sitting in the swing just puts you right into Kanji's head. And you just get this incredible feeling of closure from that. But
1: you also get get the sense that now people are seeing him the same way that he saw the rabbit or the same way that he saw the baseball bat. Yeah. Previous to that, he was just some inconsequential clerk. Now he's impacted these people, even though these people end up sort of, it's somewhat tragic because, you know, they say in their drunken state (laughs) that they're going to change their lives now because of this example, and yet they're too afraid to do it really, you know, um, that sort of points to the sort of conditioned uh, top-down structure of Japanese society, right, that it's a very conformist
0: there's so many so different ways they to can't see really that. like
1: they can't really break out of that right yeah. even though they want to and he's given them this marvelous example and yet they can't they can't implement it they can't make it work for themselves and that's, the the tragedy, was... that's the tragedy of it is they're going to end up you know just like i'm sorry even even the one clerk who seemed more
2: than the others to get it. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't actually go back and like rewatch the beginning of the film and compare it to that final sequence. But you know, Ono who's taken over is basically simply replicating what uh, what 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 Kanji was at the beginning of the film. But in contrast to the beginning of the film, that one clerk from the wake down there at the end, yes, is is uncomfortable going back to business as usual. And when when Ono says to whatever you know public works, and he he like stands up and pushes his chair over. He has that moment where you think, oh, but then he just picks his chair back up and he sits mm-hmm. back down and he literally sinks behind the paper. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's just not a word of dialogue, but it tells you everything that you need to know about the, the extent to which um, fundamentally, even even the characters most aware of the failures and limitations of the, of the environment simply doesn't have the wherewithal to resist it.
0: I was playing with whether that's an ironic ending, a realistic ending, a tragic ending, that's an existential think, ending. Yeah. Yeah. I think the beauty is it's an existential ending, yeah.
1: I think it's tragic in a way that existentialism is tragic. Yeah. at its I believe um you know, it's interesting because the film can balance itself between this kind of life affirming message and at the same yeah. time not shy away from that ultimate void.
3: Yeah. I uh, mean, it's, you know, the, you in, know. In,
2: in, in, what, in what what Navi does, the film says it can be done. Right. But what the film also says is it is extremely difficult to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the weight, the, 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 the pressure of, the the the, the socio-normative environment that surrounds you is almost impossible to resist. Not impossible. The film's not nihilistic, uh, but almost impossible to resist. Yeah. Uh, and even 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 uh, you know the shot at the end where we have the we see the park, but we see the park in the context of the overpass, the, the massive concrete uh, that surrounds it, and the telephone poles. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fragile achievement in the context of, of, a, of a technological world, it seems to
0: me. Oh, it does, yeah, yeah. And- Maybe the, that's, I'm sorry. And he pans up to, to the sky as if the sky yeah. is unchanging, unceasing, It's uh, it looks down on you as if, yeah, you, this was all me- ultimately meaningless in a way.
2: And, and the clerk is walking over the bridge uh, in silhouette, like it's a, a black figure
0: Mm -hmm. that's part of what makes this film so great too is it has a resonance for a modern moment right oh yeah yeah right i mean you're dealing with the the trucker protests in ottawa still (laughs) right and it shows like the ineffectiveness of any civil authority to try and control anything
2: yeah apparently i i I haven't been following it closely but apparently they went in and arrested a bunch of them today and i think it's been pretty much cleaned up but they were there for like two or three weeks yeah
0: and, you know, you can see it in the American government too and how hard it is to, yeah, to, to solve any of our problems. And it's all, it all kind of is traced back to this world that these folks live in. That's still equally relevant today. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, the
2: systems are, systems. This is, um, uh, in, 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 in light of this, another, I, I recently read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's um, uh, Science of the Capital Trilogy which is about climate change. Um, And it, of course, ultimately is is optimistic and affirming. But one of the key points in the novel is that actually doing anything about climate change is virtually impossible because of the various bureaucracies, not just within the U.S., but the interlocking bureaucracies around the world that make any kind of meaningful large-scale action virtually impossible. Uh, and, you know, a film like this, which basically gives you a microcosm version of that, really helps bring that home. Mm-hmm.
1: But it also tells you that maybe that isn't the best way to enact change. No. <laughs> and that real change happens on an interpersonal level. Yeah. Uh, you grand scale changes are virtually impossible, but small scale changes are virtually impossible. Certain,
0: yeah. I think it's extremely significant that at the wake, the ones who are really celebrating Kanji's life are the people, the interlopers, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The police officer and the women who were from the beginning, right? They actually see the change that he was able to create and how he really was a hero. Uh, His fellow bureaucrats are so kind of in the water, they can't see why he stands out, why he's special. Um, yeah, very typical. of uh, Again, it resonates in the world we're living in, right? Why can't you assholes just solve these problems? You know, that's a little bit why Trump was re- was elected. You know, yeah. I alone can can fix this, right? I mean, uh, uh, that's what people are striving for. They just want easy answers, not easy answers. Well, they also Sorry, that's, that's, I'm putting a lot more cynical view on on these people's goals than than I mean to. I apologize. Uh, no, I think you am getting at.
1: I think part of it and i i can't you know i can't uh without going too far into it and i i don't want to i don't want to um i don't i don't want to be in a position where i'm ascribing motivations to people who you know i i don't maybe don't understand their motivations but i will say that i i think for a large majority of americans part of that a moment in history occurred because of the frustrations that we have with like what those women showing yeah. up who wanted yeah. to part uh you know why can't something happen what why yeah. can't you guys do anything other than pursue your own you know agenda
0: yeah, this that's is what i was trying to make yeah
2: this is, this is as usual isn't is getting us anywhere.
1: Exactly. Right. Right.
2: And We're so stuck with
0: a fetid swamp.
1: And so you, you look to the outsider and, and in this case, you know, however, however uh, ill advised that was to, to the American people, a real estate mogul was the so-called outsider, but, you know, I mean, he legitimately was an outsider, right? He was not a government official. He was he did not come up through the ranks. And that's what people yeah. wanted a break from. They wanted a break from that sort of like a juiced in power structure. Yeah. And and I think that that's yeah. So definitely I I, I think people, you know, certainly within the United States watching this film now could certainly relate to that sort of frustration with the system and, and, and the perceived inability to affect any change, large or small without you know, so much unnecessary, uh, 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 so, so many perceived to be unnecessary power structures within the way. Yeah, that perhaps. only seem that only seem to be there to serve their own needs.
2: Perhaps especially because basically literally what they're trying to do is drain a swamp.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Right. It's a cesspool. <laughs> it's
3: yeah. literally a cesspool.
1: <laughs> yeah. You can't get any more on the nose than that, Dom. Good point. <laughs>
0: yeah. But yeah, I mean, even not even the the I think the most my favorite scene in the movie is that early montage where the women are going from office to yeah. office to office, just trying to get their uh, request at least listened to. And the only one who will even pretend to listen to them is the assistant mayor, and only because it's kind of his job to try and get votes for himself. Um, yeah, these right. women have no idea how the bureaucracy works, have no yeah. idea what these departments even mean, right? And 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 you know, we all feel the same way. I Think about our government
1: sure oh another another abc uh you know department and i don't even know what it's there for i don't even know what the acronym means right and most people don't
0: what's the difference between public affairs and public works right but to them it's everything yeah it's another pile of papers
1: it's another and it's alienating you know it's part of that modern world that we live in where we have this hyper-specialization of everything in all walks of life, including government. And it yeah. becomes incredibly alienating. I always think of the trial, right, with Kafka, yeah. where we get back to Kafka again, who was sort of a precursor of existentialism or you know, a major precursor of existentialism. And, you know, it, uh, 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 K, Joseph K. is trying to find his way through all of these departments and, and, and make his way through this, like, labyrinth and uh, uh, um, legal structure and he, he cannot make sense of it, yeah. and it's completely alienating to him, uh, and it's completely absurd, right, because none of this stuff makes any sense within normal rational thought. It yep. only makes sense within the logic of the courts, and the logic of the courts is not the logic of the world. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, it happens inside corporations too have actually received specific training on on this whole concept maximizing value streams. Uh, you know, this this is just the way bureaucracies tend to grow up. I think a lot of Kurosawa's anger here is that this is all created by the Americans post war, too, is building on existing Japanese bureaucracy. There's a chance to change it, And it's only been what, six years since the war ended. Yeah, six, and, seven years, yeah. And they're trapped in this bureaucracy that just seems completely labyrinthine. Like there's a feeling of helplessness. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's uh, it's a uh, it's quite a quite a complex and um, insightful look at the intricacies of, of social system for sure.
1: Would you guys say, and in wrapping up, I think because I'm, yeah. I'm going to have to. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Would you guys agree that this is Kurosawa's best film?
2: I I would say for me, it's his second best. I I do prefer Seven Samurai.
0: This is the fifth Kurosawa film I've watched. Oh, yeah. So I'm still a little underprepared. I mean, I have seen Rashomon in the past. Um, I still feel like Ron is my favorite of his films. Interesting. But this is so heartfelt and so moving. It's a very special film. What about you?
1: I, 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 I watched this film, the first time I saw this film, I was a young man and, and now I'm middle-aged. Uh, it's surprising to me how many films are not the same films that I saw when I was younger that I see now. And in many ways, this film is the same film that I remember seeing as a young man and -hmm. seeing it now as a middle-aged man, which is interesting to me because I would think because it deals so much with mortality, I would have a different perspective on it. But I think it speaks so purely toward the human spirit or the human soul for lack of a better term that each time I see it, it seems to reaffirm to me that it's a masterpiece, and uh, I haven't seen another Kurosawa film that I think uh, achieves this level of s- sublimity. Mm. Uh, so for me personally, it, it's my favorite Kurosawa film. I um, oh, really can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, or He's with covered. Rand for that
2: matter. I mean, they're they're they are they they are they are all sui generous, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. I mean, it's a rare film master who's got six or seven true classics. Yeah. And so comparing these films in a way is unfair.
1: Yes, true.
0: Well, thank you. This has been really fun. I'm glad I got to, this is my first time watching this. I'm glad I, really glad I got to watch it.
2: I'm really glad I had an excuse to watch it again. Thanks a lot, guys. This was great. Absolutely.